you know, occasionally throughout the years, I have, um, I have uh, maybe bored some, and uh, well, that goes without question, but uh, have, have, have wanted to do some stuff related to church history. O- occasionally, I will depart from a biblical passage and a text and talk about something related to church history. And so on this 4th of July weekend, I'd like to do that once again, so I'm going to ask you to indulge me in doing that. At the time that our forefathers were fighting for their independence, there was a young man growing up in England who, um, who would have a, a profound impact into the moral and political life of Great Britain, probably more than any man uh, in history of, of Great Britain. Uh, you'll recognize his name as William Wilberforce, and I want to share a little bit tonight about this remarkable man who God used in a very, very powerful way, William Wilberforce. Let me talk to you a little bit about him. He was born in 1759 to very wealthy English parents, but they were, they were not spiritually minded at all. In fact, there's some humorous stories I thought were humorous that um, his parents kept uh, William from uh, being around some of the evangelical weird family members because they didn't want him to be poisoned by those evangelicals. And um, so uh, he grew up in this home that was um, uh, very wealthy, uh, very, um, very entitled, and uh, that was his upbringing. Now, while Thomas Jefferson is uh, writing the Declaration of Independence in 1776, William Wilberforce uh, that year was heading off to Cambridge University. And... Um, he was a bit shocked. The guy was a brilliant, brilliant young man. But he was a bit shocked when his, uh, when his counselor and his student advisor basically told him, don't bother studying. This is college life. Have a good time. And he took him up on it. Uh, William Wilberforce basically became a crazy party animal. Um, drunken stupors, uh, gambling, of. Uh, uh, life of debauchery, and uh, that was his, co- uh, that was his uh, college life. He would later write of those college years, he described them as shapeless idleness, a waste of time, shapeless idleness. Now, when he was 21 years old, finished Cambridge, he and his uh, good buddy, William Pitt, on a whim, 21 years old, they said, you know, what's a good way to continue this this uh, uh, licentious lifestyle. And they said, let's become politicians. And they ran for a seat in the parliament, 21 years old. And they spent their, they had plenty of money to spend, and they spent their money, ran their campaign, and they were elected to the House of Commons, 21 years old. In fact, William Wilberforce would never lose an election over the next 50 years until he died. William Pitt, by the way, if you know a little bit of English history, he became the youngest prime minister in Great Britain a few years later at the age of 24. 24 years old, he's the prime minister of Great Britain. Well, they continued this licentious lifestyle. In 1784, he was elected to Parliament in 1780. In 1784, he, um, he went on... Uh, one of these vacations of debauchery 
to the French Riviera. Uh, a time to party, a time to get drunk, a time to do all sorts of crazy things. And he took along a friend with him by the name of Isaac Milner. Now what <laughs> William Wilberforce didn't know was that Isaac Milner had become a radical follower of Jesus. What William Wilberforce didn't know was that Isaac Milner was one of the sharpest minds in England. The guy was brilliant. I mean, uh, Wilberforce could hardly rival him. Wil Wilberforce was a brilliant guy. But Isaac Mil Milner was like a league in his own. And so they go to the French Riviera, and what do they do for these two months? Two months. They talked about Jesus. They talked about Christianity. Wil William Wilberforce was just enthralled. He was just intrigued by this friend of his with this incredibly sharp mind who'd become a radical follower of Jesus Christ. They came back in that summer of 1784. They continued the discussion about Jesus. And it was that summer of 1784 that William Wilberforce put his faith in Jesus Christ as his only way to heaven. He wrote, I gained a sense of my great sinfulness and having so long neglected the unspeakable mercies of my God and my Savior. Several things began to work out in Wilberforce's life. First of all, he had an insatiable appetite for truth. He realized that he had squandered these early years of his life. He knew really nothing about the Bible and about the Scriptures, and so he began to just delve deeply into the things of God. He studied and he studied. He was, again, a, a voracious reader and student of the Scriptures. He had such a love for God's Word. He never went to seminary, but boy, he could hold his own. He was an incredible student of the Scripture. But something else began to change with William Wilberforce's life. Um, his, his penchant for high society living kind of began to dissipate. He had been um, a member of five very prestigious gentleman clubs in London. That's where all the parliamentarians go and the, the politicians and they go there and play their cards and gamble and drink and smoke their cigars and do who knows what else. Well, William belonged to five of these things. And slowly he began to divest himself of that kind of a lifestyle. Stop gambling, stop drinking, as he was focused more and more on loving Jesus. Something else that happened to William Wilberforce, and that is he gained a growing almost contempt for the wealth that he had been brought up in, for that um, silver spoon that he had been born with. He once wrote about riches that they were not necessarily wrong in themselves, but, quote, from the infirmity of our nature, riches were highly dangerous possessions. And he said, we are to value them chiefly, not as instruments of luxury or splendor, but as affording the means of honoring our Heavenly Father and lessening the miseries of mankind. In other words, what was happening with William Wilberforce? His eyes were turning more and more onto God, more and more onto people and needs. He said, my wealth was given to me to love God more and to love people more, to lessen the miseries of mankind. God was moving in the life of William Wilberforce in a very, very big way. He was beginning to see people like Jesus, 
saw people. That following year in 1785, Wilberforce thought, you know, I want to get involved in ministry. I love the word. I love people. And so he sought the advice of a, of a dear old friend of his, a pastor in Olney, England, by the name of John Newton. John Newton was a slave uh, captain of a slave ship, right? You remember the story? He was a writer of Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound. So he goes to John Newton. He says, Pastor Newton, I feel like I should be going into ministry. This politic thing, I think, is over in my life. But he didn't hear what he thought he was going to hear from John Newton. And basically, John Newton said, why on earth would you want to do that? God has given you a place, a stand, where you can make a difference in people's life. You can, I thought the angels were coming. Um, to make a difference in people's lives. I want to I teach the word, but John Newton said no. No, you've got a place in politics, he said, for the good of the church and for the good of the nation. And so, stay in politics, William Wilberforce did. He had this, now a new mandate from God, and he was going to use it to impact Great Britain for the cause of Christ. That began to happen. In 18, or October 28th in 1787, he made this entry into his journal. God Almighty has set before me two great objectives, the suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of manners. By that he meant moral. moral. The, the abolition of the slave trade and the transformation of morality in Great Britain. Well, he did his homework. Again, a brilliant man, and he began to learn more and more. There was a whole team of, of evangelicals in England that were abolitionists, and he spent time with them, and he began to learn more and more about the evils of slavery. And um, within a few months, he put before the House of Commons a measure to end slave trafficking in Great Britain. It was soundly defeated, soundly defeated. Uh, he tried again, defeated again. He tried the next year, defeated again. He went after it the following year, the next year, the next year, and it was always defeated. Now, you have to understand, slavery had a very powerful hold in the life of, uh, of people of Great Britain, very powerful hold. It was tied to economics, and the politicians and the king and everybody realized that, well, well, if we get away with slavery, we're slashing our own throat economically. We can't do that. We end slavery. France won't. Spain won't. Portugal won't. And those vile former colonialists in America, those Americans won't. Well, slavery had a very powerful hold in Great Britain. But Wilberforce, he fought on. He once wrote, the grand object of my parliamentary ex existence is the ab abolition of the slave trade. Before the, this great cause, all others dwindle in my eyes. I must say that the certainty that I am right here adds greatly to the complacency with which I exert myself in asserting it. If it pleases God to honor me so far, may I be the instrument of stopping such a course of wickedness and cruelty as never before disgraced a Christian country. 
as long as I can, Wilberforce said. I'm going to fight this. I'll fight it. I'll fight it. And he did. Five years went by. Ten years went by. Fifteen years go by. And he was met with great opposition. Bad things happened to Wilberforce. It wasn't that his emails just got hacked. Someone wanted to assassinate him. He was beaten up. He was uh, ridiculed. Uh, friends distanced themselves from William. The famous Admiral Lord Nelson wrote that as long as he could speak and fight, he would resist, quote, the damnable doctrines of Wilberforce and his hypocritical allies. Wilberforce was a very genuine, he was a very gracious, he was a very uh, enjoyable person. People loved him, but, but they got tired of him. It was like a broken record, the evils of slavery, the evils of slavery. But he did have his allies, like Jonathan Wesley, 88-year-old Jonathan Wesley. Before he died, he wrote Wilberforce this letter. Unless God has raised you up for this very thing, you will be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. But if God be for you, who can be against you? Are all of them together stronger than God? Oh, be not weary of well-doing. Go on in the name of God and in the power of his might till even American slavery, the vilest that ever saw the sun, shall vanish away before it. Fight on, William. Fight on. It was the last letter that Jonathan Wesley was going to write. And it was an incredible encouragement to this 32-year-old young man who was fighting for a just cause in Great Britain. Five days later, Jonathan Wesley did die. But Wesley's words were prophetic words. He kept fighting, and 20 years after he made that first speech against slavery in Parliament, 20 years later, 20 years later, on February 24th in 1807, a vote was taken. Debate had gone on long into the early morning hours, but at 4 a.m., on February 24th, 1807, the vote was taken. For 20 years, Wilberforce had won friends just by his Christ-like and, and winsome way, and, but by his reasonable answers to their questions, by the way he positioned the argument against slavery. He won over people. And when that vote was taken at 4 in the morning on February 24th in 1807, Wilberforce had his victory. 283 A's, 16 no's. 16 no's. Wilberforce sat there, his head in his hands, tears streaming down his face. He had won the victory. No, he said God had won the victory. He savored the victory that for two decades he had so long hard fought. But the fight was just beginning. You see, what they had voted on was to end the slave trafficking, not slavery itself. In fact, really not much change at all. Illegal trafficking of slaves now began, since it was no longer legal. And actually it got worse for the slaves, for the African slaves. Because when a ship would be, um, 
when a, when a, when a, a royal ship would come by and come close to a slave ship harboring slaves, they would simply throw the slaves into the ocean to drown so they wouldn't be caught with illegal cargo in their hold. And so William Wilberforce fought on. He fought on. And once again, his hard work, his diligent efforts as a champion of justice and mercy paid off. It wasn't just 20 years later, though. It was 26 more years. 26 more years. It was July 26, 1833, 46 years after war, William Wilberforce had begun his crusade against slavery. The British Parliament finally voted to eliminate the scourge of slavery from all of the empire. Wilberforce was not there to cast his vote. He was sick and he was dying. But a friend told him, we've won. We've won, William. And in his weakened condition, he said, thank God I was able to live to witness this day. And three days later, this great heroic fighter for justice got his freedom, his perfect freedom and rest in heaven. All slaves throughout Great Britain and their territories were now free, 1833. I'm going to stir up the crowd here. Don't throw any stones on me yet on this July 4th weekend. But you see, there was one former territory or, or country that had been a, a territory of Great Britain where the slaves were not free, where it would take another 20-some years before one of the bloodiest wars this country ever saw, the Civil War, would finally end freedom. Folks, it makes me wonder why the colonials in this country violated Romans 13, be subject to governmental authorities. That's what it says. We're going to talk about that in August. Be subject to governmental authorities. If the United States or the colonies would have been subject to the authorities of King George and all the craziness of King George, slavery would have ended in this country bloodlessly in 1833. Think about it. When you violate the scriptures, bad things happen. The whole nation mourned his death. Political friends and foes alike. His friend William Jay wrote this tribute. His disinterested, self-denying, laborious, undeclining efforts in this cause of justice and humanity will call down the blessings of millions and ages yet to come will glory in his memory. Tonight we're going to watch a film. 2021. In the year 2021, we're going to watch a film about William Wilberforce. Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound. Now, I would do Wilberforce an injustice today if I just left it that that's all he did was get rid of slavery. He fought for many causes. He was involved in 
in leadership positions of 69 different philanthropic organizations. He worked for prison reform against pornography. He fought for funding of Christian schools for poor people. He worked to alleviate child labor conditions, for agricultural reform to provide affordable food for the poor. He even advocated for the prevention of the cruelty to animals. And you'd have to read a little bit something about what was going on in England in that time and the cruelty to animals to understand why he took that up as a, as a cause. But on and on it went. William Wilberforce had a huge heart, a persevering spirit, not to mention the stories of his love with his wife, raising his children, and the constant help that he gave people. He was a doer of the word and not just a hearer only. So what are some lessons? What are some lessons from the life of this valiant warrior for justice? For seven weeks, we've been parked in Romans chapter 12. Let our love be without hypocrisy. For seven weeks, we've focused on that. And if you want an example of unhypocritical love, look no further than William Wilberforce. Let me give you some examples. Paul tells us in Romans 12, 9, Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, right? Abhor what is evil. Boy, did Wilberforce abhor evil. He said this in a speech in Parliament in 1789. As soon as ever I had arrived thus far in my investigation of the slave trade, I confess to you, sir, so enormous, so dreadful, so irremediable did its wickedness appear that in my own mind was completely made up for abolition. A trade founded in iniquity, carried on as this was, must be abolished. Let policy be what it might. Let the consequences be what they would. I from this time determined that I would never rest until I'd effected the abolition of slavery in Great Britain. He hated it as God did. Paul tells us in Romans 12, 11, that unhypocritical love doesn't lag behind. It's fervent in spirit. And man, this short little man called William Wilberforce, barely five foot tall, he was a dynamo of energy. Fervent in spirit, diligent. 46 years, he never lost his zeal. Even in moments that any normal human being would get discouraged for the fight. Wilberforce didn't. He kept working. He kept working in so many organizations, the British Foreign Bible Society, the Church Missionary Society, the Society for the Manufacturing Poor, the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. He was always looking for the next thing. When, when that vote was taken to limit that trade in 1807, he was walking out early that morning with his friend Henry Thornton. And they were high-fiving, sort of, but whatever they did back in those days. They were excited. They were slapping each other on the back. And William Wilberforce turned to his friend Thornton. He says, Henry, what should we abolish now? He saw injustice. And he said, we can do something about it as God's people. We who stand up for the cause of Christ, we can make a change. And he fought his entire life to do that. Scottish biographer James Boswell, who had witnessed a speech once of Wilberforce's in the House of Commons, who, as I mentioned, Wilberforce only barely five feet tall, Scottish 
biographer James Boswell said, I saw what seemed a mere shrimp mount upon a table in Parliament. But as I listened, he grew and he grew until this shrimp became a whale. Wilberforce had such energy, such zeal for truth and righteousness. Paul tells us in verse 12 that unhypocritical love perseveres in tribulations. So true of Wilberforce. Mentioned Jonathan Wesley, the last letter that he wrote. He said, unless God has raised you up for this very thing, you will be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. But if God is for you, who can be against you? Boy, did those words prove prophetic. He persevered for almost 50 years in this cause. In a speech to the House of Commons in 1791, Wilberforce said this, Let us not despair. It is a blessed cause, and success ere long will crown our exertions. Already we have gained one victory. We have obtained for these poor creatures the recognition of their human nature, which for a while was most shamefully denied. This is the first fruits of our efforts. So let us persevere, and our triumph will be complete. Never, never will we desist until we've wiped away the scandal from the Christian name, released ourselves from the load of guilt under which we at the present labor, and extinguished every trace of this bloody traffic of which our posterity, looking back to the history of these enlightened times, will scarce believe that it has been suffered to exist so long a disgrace and dishonor to this country. In one of his last speeches in Parliament, Wilberforce, who is now sick, very aged, wrote, or he said in, in Parliament, I wish once more to raise my feeble voice to advocate, however faintly, that good cause for which I have so often pleaded and for the success of which my heart will never cease to feel deeply to the latest moment of rational existence. We ought not to lose a single moment in doing away with the multiplied wrongs of the slaves by that actual admission to that liberty to which the God of nature has entitled them. Let us then proceed with renewed energy in carrying into ex execution one of the greatest acts of mercy a people ever had in their power to perform. Let us all remember that here we have no option. He never quit. He persevered till the very end. Because that's what a heart of compassion, that's what unhypocritical love does. You love people, you persevere. Verse 11 of Romans 12 said, Unhypocritical love serves the Lord. And Wilberforce never lost sight. He was serving the king of kings. He once said, There is a principle above everything that is political. And when I reflect on the command that says, Thou shalt not murder, believing the authority to be divine, how can I dare set up any reasoning of my own against it? And so, when we think of eternity and the future consequences of all human conduct, what is there in this life which should make any man contradict the principles of his own conscience, the principles of justice, the laws of religion, and of God himself? We are created by the Creator to honor him. Romans 12, 12 said, unhypocritical love rejoices in hope. Time and time again, Wilberforce had every right to lose hope, every right to give up. But he lived with such hope, and he was such a winsome, joyful person. One time in the House of Commons, 
something struck him so funny about a speech that somebody, a guy was giving, he started chuckling. Then he started laughing. And he laughed so hard he fell out of his chair. He was always just a joyful person. He said once in Parliament, justice, humanity, and sound policy prescribe our course and will animate our efforts. Stimulated by a consciousness of what we owe to the laws of God and the rights and happiness to men, our exertions will be ardent, our perseverance invincible, our ultimate success is sure, and ere long we shall rejoice in the consciousness of having delivered our country from the greatest of her crimes and rescued her character from the deepest stain of dishonor. We shall rejoice one day. Anyone who spent time with William Wilberforce caught that sense of joy and hope. There was a certain Miss Sullivan, a friend of his, who wrote about him in 1815. She said, by the tones of his voice and the expressions of his countenance, he showed that joy was the prevailing feature of his own mind. Joy springing from the entireness of, of trust in the Savior's merit and from love to God and man. His joy, she wrote, was so penetrating. And while Wilberforce's time and time and time again attacked, he continued to rejoice in hope. In fact, he would chasten the church of England or the, the believing community in England for their lack of joy. He once wrote this, My grand objection to the religious system still held by many who desire themselves and call themselves Orthodox Christians, my main grand objection is that it tends to render Christianity so much a, a system of prohibitions rather than of privileges and hopes, and thus the injunction to rejoice. It's so strongly enforced in the New Testament. It's practically neglected, and religion is made to wear a forbidden and gloomy air and not one of peace and hope and joy. It was like, what is wrong with Christians? Are they baptized in lemon juice? Paul said in Romans chapter 12, verse 13, that unhypocritical love contributes to the needs of the saints. During his lifetime, William Wilberforce gave over 25% of his income to charities. He paid for the education of people who couldn't afford it. He opened up his home, practicing hospitality to people in need. As I mentioned, he was involved in 69 philanthropic causes. When Charles Wesley died, William committed to support his widow for the remainder of her, of her life. He established Sunday schools for poor children and supported unwed mothers. Wilberforce was a man of small stature, but he had a huge heart. He was a man of unhypocritical love. He contributed to the needs of the saints. I could go on and on tonight. One more thing I want to mention. Paul says, unhypocritical love overcomes evil with good. Romans 12, 21. Don't be overcome by evil. Overcome evil with good. Wilberforce had this indomitable spirit to do good, to right wrongs, to stand up for just causes. One biographer said that Wilberforce, he, he just didn't have enough life. He didn't have enough years. He didn't have enough time to live out all the things that in his mind he saw and he wanted to, to, to change in society. 
Wilberforce himself said this, no man has a right, listen, no man has a right to be idle. Where is it that in such a world as this, that health and leisure and affluence cannot find some ignorance to instruct, some wrong to redress, some want to supply, some misery to alleviate? What are we doing with our time? That's what Wilberforce said. He lived his life to do good, to give glory to God, to let his light shine in such a way. And boy, did people see the light of Jesus. When he died on July 29th, 1833, the American abolitionist Benjamin Hughes wrote this. I present you no blood-stained hero, he has led no slaughtering armies. He has desolated no kingdom. For him, no triumphal arch is reared. His laurels have been won in another and no more nobler sphere. He was no aspirant to popular applause, no time-serving politician, but he was a friend of the robbed and the peeled. He was a perfect character. Eric Metaxas, and I would recommend his book to you on William Wilberforce. In his biography on William, he wrote this. Taken all together, it's difficult to escape the verdict that William Wilberforce was simply the greatest social reformer in the history of the world. The world he was born into in 1759 and the world he departed in 1833 were as different as lead is from gold. He wrote, Wilberforce presided over a social earthquake that rearranged the continent and whose magnitude we are only now beginning to fully appreciate. He was a rare human breed, a rare born-again Christian. And yet Wilberforce, Wilberforce understood that all this was not him. It was the Spirit of God that dwelt within him. He wants to bemoan the fact that so many Christians of his days that he was living in had the idea that, quote, morality is to be obtained by their own natural unassisted efforts. Or if they admit some vague and distinct notion of, of the assistance of the Holy Spirit, it is unquestionably obvious on conversing with them that this does not really constitute the main practical ground of their dependence. He said Christians need to renounce this. They need to renounce with all indignation every idea of attaining it by their own strength. All his hopes of possessing it rest altogether on the divine assurance of the operation of the Holy Spirit and those who cordially embrace the gospel of Christ. Wilberforce lived with the understanding, not I, but Christ. God has probably not called any of us to be a William Wilberforce. He has called us to love without hypocrisy. He's called every one of us to abhor evil and cling to what is good. He's called every one of us to be devoted to one another with brotherly love. He's called every one of us to give preference to one another in honor and not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit and serving the Lord. He's called every one of us to rejoice in hope, to persevere in tribulation, to serve the Lord through devoted prayer. He calls us to contribute to the needs of the saints, to practice hospitality, and to never give back evil with evil. 
to never take one's own revenge. He calls us to overcome evil. Not with evil, but with good. With the life of Jesus Christ flowing from us. And all of it, all of it starts with a love for God himself. Let me close with one more statement by William Wilberforce. He said, if there is no passionate love for Christ at the center of everything, we will only jingle and jangle our way across the world, merely making noise as we go. We will only jingle and jangle our way across this world, barely making noise. God is calling us to be change agents in this world. Fellowship Bible Church exists to prepare and deploy dependent disciples who change their world for Christ as they're being changed by Christ. And there's one way that we change. It starts by having a passionate love for Christ. Do you know him as your personal Savior? Have you come to that point to realize he had a passionate love for you? God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Have you put your faith and trust in Christ and Christ alone? I'm not going to assume for one moment that because you're here tonight, because you're a part of Fellowship Bible Church, that you put your personal faith in Christ and him alone. But I'm going to invite you to do that. I'm going to invite you to not put trust in your good works or religion or anything else that you might think God would be impressed with. God is impressed with one thing, and that is what his son accomplished on the cross. He paid for our sins. He died. He rose again. And to anyone who will put their faith in Christ and Christ alone, he'll offer, he'll give freely the gift of eternal life. No questions asked. No bottom line. No fine print. It's a free gift to anyone who will put their trust in Christ. I want to invite you to do that tonight. So that on this night, July 3rd, 2021, you can say, Tonight, I put my trust in Christ as my only way to heaven. Would you bow your head, please, in prayer? And if you're watching online tonight or tomorrow or whenever you're watching this, may this also be your prayer. Father, I would ask, that if there's anyone here tonight who's yet to put their trust in Christ and what you've done for us by giving us the free gift of eternal life, I pray that you will do what only you can do, and that's open a heart to respond in faith. Open a heart right now, Father, so that they will come to see the utter destitute of their own good works and the efficacy of the one good work, Jesus' payment on the cross for our sins. He shed his blood to pay for these sins. Father, that was your plan. So, Father, if there's anyone here tonight who's yet to put their trust in Christ, may you open their heart right now to receive that free gift. And then, Father, I would also pray that tonight and this weekend that we celebrate our freedom to be able to do this openly, the freedom that we have so enjoyed these 240-some years. Father, I pray that we will, while, we'll, while we still are able, we'll take advantage of that freedom and proclaim your goodness 
But before we share good news, Father, we got to be good news. And this world needs people who are doing those good deeds of kindness, of living that life of salt and light. We may not, Father, ever see another William Wilberforce. But, Father, you want to use us tonight for the rest of our lives to make a difference in someone else's life. Help us, Father, to be people who love without hypocrisy, genuinely, real, true, purely. For your glory and honor, we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.